Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Jared Yates Sexton is a political analyst and author. His work has appeared in The New York Times, The New Republic Politico, The Daily Beast, and elsewhere. He is the co-host of the Muckrake podcast, and his new book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis, is now available to order. Here's a question. What do you do about an increasingly outright seditious faction, for lack of a better adjective, in American politics, one that we haven't seen in this form since, I don't know, arguably the Civil War. We witnessed firsthand what happened when the President of the United States weaponized this theory. The Capitol was overrun. Police officers lost their lives. Man smashed the back windows and broke into the home of the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the third highest ranking official in America. He carried in his backpack zip ties, duct tape, rope, and a hammer. As he told the police, he'd come looking for Nancy Pelosi to take her hostage, to interrogate her, to threaten to break her kneecaps. So, Jared, I'm excited to get into your book, but I guess first let's start off with you telling our listeners a bit about you and your work. I come from a really rural, poor Indiana family, family of laborers, factory workers, mine workers, service workers. And I was raised up in a very extreme evangelical community. Basically, every Sunday was spent being told about Book of Revelation, how the world was full of conspiracy theories, Satan was coming to get us. It was as easy as watching something on the television or listening to the wrong music. And when I started covering Trump rallies in 2016, I started going into the crowds. This was, you know, back when the networks were basically just giving him an hour and a half to two hours of free publicity, billions of dollars of free advertising, because it was just a lark. It was just something funny to watch. I was in these crowds. And in the conversations that I would overhear and in the conversations that I would have with the people, I started to realize that it wasn't something harmless, that there was something really ugly growing within the Trump movement, and that it reflected what I had dealt with as a kid, what I had seen when I was part of that extreme evangelical community that I had left. And what I realized was that these energies and these ideas and these conspiracy theories were creating something within the Trump movement and within the right wing in the United States of America that was anti-democratic, 
that was dangerous, that was authoritarian in nature. Conversations about rounding people up, putting people in prison, and even murdering journalists and politicians. And that was about the time that I really started sounding the alarm and really trying to understand what was happening in this country. And then I realized, and with the writing in the Midnight Kingdom especially, I realized that these stories that were being told to my community and a lot of people in America, these stories were preparing them for these types of authoritarian energies, which is unfortunately why we're in the situation that we are now. One of the things I love about your book is you use your own personal upbringings as part of how you frame the narrative. And the Midnight Kingdom, it frames much of the rise of the right and the power dynamics of the right in religious terms. Can you just speak a little bit to that and how it correlates with your upbringing? Yeah, so there are a couple of elements within right-wing circles and within Christianity that correspond to what we've seen in the past and what I found in the research for the Midnight Kingdom. There are elements of Christianity, there are dynamics, there are principles that allow top-down hierarchical society to move forward. One is apocalypticism. It's the idea that every single moment of every single day, including, again, like, me listening to the wrong music as a kid or, you know, me like having the wrong conversation with somebody or the most impure thoughts. All of a sudden, those things are going to contribute to a larger spiritual battle between capital G good and capital E evil. And this is everything's on the line in every single situation, whether it's talking about gas stoves or what Eminem does with their mascots. These things are not small. They're not things that we can have conversations about, including things like reproductive justice or civil rights. We can't have conversations about those things because they are part of a larger spiritual battle. There's no room for compromise. There's no room for a conversation. And as a result, that also makes anything that you could possibly do on the table, right? Makes it possible. It legitimizes all these unthinkable actions, which is another part of these Christian principles. St. Augustine, who is one of the leading sort of ideologues of that movement, talked a lot about things like holy persecution or rightful persecution. The idea that anybody who was evangelical or anybody who was in the Christian faith and was part of the church, they could do anything that they wanted to other people, including oppression, violence, enslavement, and genocide, if you want to take it down the line, because they were doing it on behalf of God, right? They had God on their side. There is no crime with God on your side. And so as a result, it's okay to go out and, I don't know, shoot up the homes of election workers. It's okay to go out and murder people. It's okay to overthrow elections. And in fact, it's not only okay, it's your job. It's your duty because you are a warrior for God. And so what all this does is it creates a perfect scenario in which people can become radicalized through these conspiracy theories and through these stories and through this ideology they are prepared to go out and do things that otherwise would be unthinkable. Overthrowing a government, committing political violence, those types of things. Evangelical Christians are a huge chunk of the American population. 34%. Well over 100 million people describe themselves as evangelical or born again. And recent studies have shown they're way more prone to believe conspiracy theories than most non-evangelicals. As of January, 27% of white evangelicals said they believe QAnon was completely or mostly accurate, and 49% thought Antifa was responsible for the capital violence. And so it's, a, it's an incredibly useful conduit to preparing people for these almost unthinkable circumstances. And we're recording this just after the first of the year. The Republican Party took control of the House and yet couldn't even figure out how to come up with a speaker. 
And I think that the struggle inside the right really illustrates some of the themes of the book. I feel like we're really just watching it all play out. So I guess the question is, what's happening in the America right now in 2023? One of the strange things about all of this is we've been told for years and decades that the Republican Party is this very narrow tent and it's completely disciplined. Everybody's on the same page. One of the things that we've seen over the past few years, and Donald Trump, by the way, and I always like to say this, Donald Trump was a symptom and not the disease, right? Like he didn't create all of this. Like he was the perfect person for uh, what was happening in terms of politically and historically. But what has happened on the right in the past few years is we have seen a schism. We have people like a Mitch McConnell, who everybody sees as the consummate Republican politician. Mitch McConnell and this old guard of the Republican Party, their main purpose was to destroy the federal government, to get rid of any sort of oversight. The wealthy were supposed to get wealthier, right? It was a more libertarian idea. They were going to get rid of their taxes, which is what they always do when they have power. They were going to go ahead and get rid of any regulation that could possibly hinder what happens at you know the corporate level or the big business level. But what we've seen in the past few years is a more authoritarian movement that has started jockeying for control. We can call this the national conservatives. We can look at people like J.D. Vance, Josh Howley, the Freedom Caucus, of course. Some of them are grifters. Some of them are ideologues. But what we're seeing in all of this is that there is a more extreme right-wing authoritarian movement, and this is what they believe. They believe that things have moved too far in terms of progress. They believe that people have too many rights. They believe that democracy is dangerous. They believe that we are reaching the end of what we would call neoliberal globalism. And they are interested in sort of moving beyond Republican orthodoxy. And by the way, they hate McConnell. This is one of the reasons, you know, that they hate McCarthy as well. They see these people as compromisers. They see them as neoliberals. They see them as people who have caused part of this problem. They are interested in basically using state power. And weirdly enough, They're interested in doing it in ways that they're learning from people like Karl Marx, right? They're interested in like using the power of government to go after corporations in order to overtake their power, which is part of what we're watching with their battle with big tech, the idea that they should be taking over places like Twitter, which has now effectively happened, of course, with Elon Musk taking it over and becoming more radicalized day to day. And we see something like the speaker fight. They basically won this entire battle. They gained outsized leverage over the process. They're basically accelerating the debt ceiling situation, which they are attempting to use to get rid of things like Social Security and Medicare. And they are obsessed. And I want to make this point and make it very clear. They want to roll back the progress of the 20th century. This doesn't stop with Roe v. Wade. It doesn't stop with same-sex marriage. We're talking about everything from Social Security to the 40-hour work week to the possibility of child labor. They see the progress of the 20th century, which, by the way, was hard-earned. They see it as a major mistake. They think that we have to roll back time, in fact, to destroy liberal democracy itself. This is an apocalyptic battle, more or less, between a right-wing reactionary authoritarian movement, which, by the way, is in the United States, it's in Russia, it's in Hungary, it's all around the world at this point. We're watching it start to take shape, and it is attempting to roll back the clock and get rid of all of the things that we have thought was permanent and was just a denotation of progress.
I think historical context is so important as well. And we often look to American history as beginning with the American Revolution and the adoption of the Constitution. And yet you start your book examining millennia of history. Why was that so important to include so much historical context? What I was really interested in understanding is how avenues of power work. I want to know how the powerful not only protect themselves, but also how they expand their power. And in the midst of all of this, the past few years, there's been so much talk about history, whether or not it's restricting conversations about history, going after historians, publishing weaponized history, such as Trump's farcical 1776 project, Ron DeSantis going after curriculum and teachers and schools. The Republican governor's administration is blocking an advanced placement African-American history course from the state's high school curriculum. In a letter obtained by ABC News, the Florida Department of Education rejected the course, calling it inexplicably contrary to the Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. And every time like a statue would be torn down, we would hear this is about protecting Western civilization. Well, I want to go back to the beginning. I want to start with Rome, particularly where state power merged with Christianity. And what I found over time, it really surprised me how quickly it happened in researching the Midnight Kingdom. It became very clear that time is not just linear. Time is cyclical. It moves constantly in these very observable, but also predictable and understandable cycles. And what you notice is that there are times in history where the current order, the status quo, it feels very concrete. We saw this, of course, after the Soviet Union fell, and we started talking about the end of history and the American century will last forever. And then you look up one day and all of a sudden it's like everything could possibly change, right? Everything is malleable, which is the moment that we're in right now. And what I realized in researching this book is I started to realize that the wealthy and the powerful They use these stories, these conspiracy theories, these mythologies, the ones that we're dealing with right now, the ones that we're having conversations with, the ones that we're watching the people that we love and care about and know just absolutely get radicalized and lost within. They use these things to their own ends. We see it in everything from the critical race theory to the groomer conspiracy theory where they're taking over local governments and local schools. We see it in how it's being used to set up things like January 6th, which of course was funded by the same people who funded Donald Trump or funded the Ottawa truckers convoy in Canada and probably the attempted coup in Brazil on January 8th. But as we take a look at all of those things, what we recognize is that these moments have observable patterns, that they have observable stories, observable conspiracy theories. We can understand what they are. We can basically take the temperature of a moment. We can understand what's happening and what is about to happen. With what you learned, what you researched for the book, how do those instances usually end? That's a great question. The answer is that the ball is up in the air. I remain incredibly optimistic. I actually think that this moment is going to end up turning into a better future. I think conversations like this one, I think the information that we have, the movements that we're seeing around the world right now, they lend themselves to the idea that this is going to get better and that we are going to fight for a better future. But we also need to understand. That in the past, that hasn't always happened. Someone like a Benito Mussolini, as he was formulating the idea of fascism, he told us the best advantage we have as fascists is everyone's belief that things are just going to continue to move forward. But you can move backward. And there are these moments, you even take a look at something like the post-Napoleonic era, where conservative forces basically use the outrage over Napoleon and all of the chaos of the Napoleonic Wars 
to basically create a reactionary conservative world order. They actually rolled back time and information and knowledge. The Christians did the exact same things following the Roman Empire. These malleable moments, it's up in the air how they're going to shape out. They can go either way. The problem at this point is that there are plenty of people who are in denial that this is one of those moments. They think that the status quo is just going to repair itself, you know, that Republicans are going to awaken from their fever and suddenly feel better about things, or if Donald Trump is prosecuted or whatever, like that'll take care of it. But the truth is that we are in a generational defining, future defining moment. And this is one of the reasons why I wrote this book and why I sound this alarm, because I want the future to be better. I think it can be better. But the first step in making that come true is to understand that we are in the middle of that battle. You started going to Trump rallies and you realized that something was up and things were shifting. I want to know, was there one moment where you said, oh, God, or was it just the overall whiteness and hostility? What was it that made you really look at it and say, you know what, shit's going down? For a while there, I think Donald Trump, again, being this farcical lark, I think there were a ton of people who were going to these rallies basically to like rubberneck, you know, here's the big famous reality star who's out there doing his thing. People are talking about it. But over time, these conspiracy theories that he was peddling, the fear mongering that he was peddling, I started to realize through these conversations, again, that I was overhearing and that I was having, that they were finding purchase. He would talk about the media who were kept in a pin behind me and talk about, you know, how not only were they lying, but they were like enemies of the people. And people started talking to me about what they wanted to do to the media, right? Or what they wanted to do to Hillary Clinton. Today, Donald Trump speaking to, at a rally said something so outrageous, it even shocked me. So how is that possible? I know Donald Trump. I know all the insane things he said, all the hateful things he said. How could he go over the top even for himself? Well, you're about to see he's first talking about Hillary Clinton's judges, and then listen to what he says at the end. If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. And the conversation started going in a really awful route. It would have these moments where they would take glee in it. They would almost become excited by this idea. And then someone next to them would get into the conversation and it would escalate. And I started to realize that these rallies were sort of gathering points for these types of people. There's another moment, and this was actually the night that he announced his Muslim ban. It was after one of these unfortunate tragedies. He came out and said, you know, we need to figure out what the hell's going on. We need to ban Muslims. That night, it was on board a battleship. This was in South Carolina. And I went outside, and after we had this rally, which was disgusting and evil, Islamophobic and racist and sexist, we went outside and there was a group of protesters out there who were protesting Trump. And there were all of these, you know, sometimes at these memorials, they'll have like cannons and guns that are like out there just showing people what they are. And I was standing next to this guy and he just looked at one of these turrets and he looked at the protesters. And again, I am a, I'm a white dude. I'm a white bearded guy wearing jeans and boots. Like I fit in with these people, at least aesthetically. And he just started talking about how much he wished he could use these weapons on these people. And it became clear that there was a growing identity in it. And a lot of these people, and this is important for an understanding of what's happening. A lot of the people who would go to these Trump rallies, whether true or not, they felt powerless and they felt alone, right? 
And they would start going to these rallies. It made them feel powerful. It made them feel like they were part of something, which, by the way, is how you understand fascism, Nazism, right? Oh, you feel alone? Go to this rally. Be around all these other people who are engaged in this one thing. It's a religion. It's a religious sort of a festival. Oh, you feel powerless? Slip on this armband and goose step through Main Street. And what happens in all of these is demagogues like Trump, they create these faux populist movements the same way Mussolini and Hitler did. They create these faux populist movements and they act on that fear, that terror, that insecurity. And it became obvious very quickly, even if I didn't have the research that I've been able to have from the Midnight Kingdom, that something ugly was growing and metastasizing around the Trump movement. And the other thing is he gave all of the different hate groups one sort of umbrella to be under. And then with Twitter and the way in which social media allows people in dark corners to find each other and feel like there's a sense of community, I think all of that was just a recipe for what we've seen in the last six years. Yeah, and there was a lot happening there. I'm talking again about people that I've known, people I've cared about, people I grew up with who have gone down these paths. And I think people need to understand that for years and years, if not decades, there was a growing pushback against having these beliefs, against racist, misogynistic, homophobic beliefs. Like you could talk about it at home with a closed door, right? Because you didn't want to go out in the world and be judged for it. What Trump did, and again, this wasn't necessarily intentional. You know, if it wasn't him, it would have been somebody that flung open the door. It said, no, this is a respectable political movement, right? Look around you. You're at a rally. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people who feel the exact same way as you do. It even gave them consumer identity, right? You put on the red hat, make America great again. You buy Trump stickers, you buy a Trump flag. You're signaling to other people, this is the type of person that I am. And in the past, it used to be a shameful thing. It used to be the type of thing that you had to code switch around. You had to know where you were saying it or who you were saying it around. It brought it out into the open. And that combined with social media's incentivizing of these ideas, because Facebook, Twitter, all these people profited off of it. Even places like the New York Times, Washington Post, they profited off of Trumpism. It created this entire sort of momentum there. You allow conspiracy theories to grow. I've watched people go from sharing Trump memes one day to sharing QAnon memes the next day. And then a couple of weeks later, they're sharing memes that have been made by paramilitary separatist groups, white nationalists, white supremacists. It radicalized them very quickly. And that was allowed to take purchase. And by the way, the Republican Party deserves credit for that. Social media deserves credit for that. Our media deserves credit for that. The people within the Democratic Party who looked at it and said, oh, this will be great for us politically. They deserve part of it. The entire system rotting through deserves credit for that. But what happened is it very quickly took off because all of those things were there. It was a tinderbox ready to go up. And all of these different things, all these confluences came together to create a perfect storm. So do you think in the psychology of all this, the quest for power really is worth losing more money than anyone in history? Like, what is that mindset? What is going on in the minds of these people? So I think Elon Musk and Donald Trump have done us an invaluable service, right? They have made clear that the meritocracy isn't real, that just because you're one of the richest people in a country or the world means that somehow or another you're talented or capable or competent. But I also want to point out someone like an Elon Musk. You'll notice that he is moving further and further right. This is not surprising. The most wealthy man supposedly in the world, like suddenly hating democracy. That's obvious. Like, why wouldn't he? 
Democracy is the only impediment against him. Governments have been bought out and corrupted. And meanwhile, you have like groups of people who might not agree with him and they might not vote for something that he wants them to vote for. As a result, we've seen like from the 1920s and 30s, the industrialists of that age, you know, the, these giants, they eventually in the 30s ended up giving money to people like Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, right? Because they saw this crisis start to gather. And as a result, they needed to protect themselves, needed to protect their wealth. And they saw that the status quo would reach this unstable point where people were going to come for what they had, or they were going to somehow or another change things around and reform, and it eventually might cost them some money. Musk looks at this through an ideology of what's called long-termism, which is the idea that the wealthy and the powerful are not only the best people in the world, but they're determining in the long run what humanity should do. Who cares about right now? We're talking about trillions of future people, right? And by the way, he is going to be the one that gets us off this planet. He's going to take the light of humanity into the stars. By the way, for anyone at home saying, that sounds like religion, you're exactly right. It is the worship of wealth and tech and the idea that he is a messiah of some sort. What he is doing with Twitter is both disastrous in terms of its bottom line, because he is not competent or capable, but also he is turning it in, in, in Twitter, more or less, as a corporatized public square where most of our narratives and ideas are sort of formed, particularly in the media class. He has turned it further to the right than anybody could have imagined, and very quickly. The radicalization in this country is largely taking place online and on social media. Now, one of the biggest social media platforms is under the control of Elon Musk, a man who loves Russian dictator Vladimir Putin and who likely will replatform Donald Trump. Musk's Twitter takeover has already sparked a full-scale return of unchecked misogyny, racism, and anti-Semitism to the platform. The far right swept onto the platform this morning, seemingly just to post the N-word repeatedly and to hurl anti-Semitic insults. And this is exactly what the wealth class has always done. They buy up the newspapers, they buy up the media, they buy up the government, and they do it in order to further their own power and their own influence. This stuff is very predictable. We've seen it move in these cycles over and over again. The Elon Musk thing, it's very weird because we're watching it on a daily basis. But if Henry Ford would have had a Twitter account, we would have seen some really weird things from that guy. But it's the instant access to his thoughts and also the day-to-day -day experience of it that makes it so strange to us and so off-putting. But what we're watching right now with Musk, it's unfortunately very predictable and it only moves in the direction of authoritarianism. We were raised in a Cold War with the idea of American exceptionalism. And I feel like it was easy then. We could frame our identity as the good guys in contrast with the evil Soviet empire. It was binary. So I'm curious to what you think happened to our domestic power structures when the Soviet bloc collapsed. I would go ahead and start while the Soviet bloc was taking shape and also gaining power. So after World War I, everybody likes to talk about the Red Scare after World War II. There was a Red Scare after World War I, in which we basically went after African-Americans and labor unions. It was very uh, potent to talk about the evil empire and then to go after these people and break them on behalf of capitalism and the wealthy and the powerful. The Red Scare after World War II weaponized this paranoia, that the idea that Russians were trying to take over everything, and it allowed the conservatives and the wealthy to deconstruct the New Deal coalition. They went after supposed socialists, supposed communists, gay people, women. They basically went after everybody who was holding up this New Deal consensus structure. Well, eventually what happened 
is that New Deal consensus, the idea that the government should be investing in work programs or social safety nets, right? That gets destroyed by what we now call the neoliberal consensus. This takes place in the late 70s, 1980s, 1990s. Basically, we associate it with Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher. And basically what happens is there's this new idea of neoliberalism, which is the idea that Regular people shouldn't have any say in how any of this stuff works. Their votes shouldn't matter. They basically should be reduced to consumers. The government should not be investing money into programs, picking quote-unquote winners or choosers or investing in social safety nets. They should simply be there to take care of the free market and the wealthy. And what happens is horrific. Six to seven trillion, with a T, trillion dollars are redistributed from the working and middle class to the wealthiest 1%. This is how from the 1980s, where you have people flying around in private jets, to now where you have people who have private space agencies. That's how that moves. That's how that changes. So over time, the United States, when the Soviet Union falls, it creates what we now call globalism. Its systems start circling the globe, with America at the top supposedly being the consumer information society. We're the ones who are buying the things. We're the ones who are making sure the logistics and the information is taken care of with second world countries and third world countries providing the resources and the labor, all of it at a discount, right? So what happens is we create basically a caste society. There are the people who have and the people who do not. And the people who do not are constantly being pressed and squeezed with no protections. We've gotten rid of labor unions. We've gotten rid of regulations. We've gotten rid of any investment that's supposed to help them. It's made the world more miserable. And by the way, and this is something that history also shows us that I learned right in the Midnight Kingdom, every time this happens, I mean, from the very first corporation that was created in order to carry out the slave trade, when that wealth gets concentrated in too few hands, they take over your government, they take over your representative government, and then everything falls out of whack. And then you're in the middle of a crisis and you have to make choices and you reach another moment of truth where things are either going to get better or they're going to get worse. So what has happened is that what you and I consider the United States of America, you know, we think about nation states as being like the main sort of arbiter of reality. That's not how these people consider it. They're not thinking in terms of Americans. They're thinking in terms of internationalism. They're thinking in terms of moving a thing from here to here. They're not being taxed. They're not being regulated. They've started to overshadow the old government structures that we used to talk about. So we have created basically a ticking time bomb. And that we have arrived at this point where people are being exploited. They're not being paid enough money. They're not being protected. They're not being taken care of. They live in a worsening world with worsening exploitation. The fact that we've arrived at this point is entirely predictable. It's what always happens. And it's what happens whenever we have this concentration of wealth and power. In the book, you also talk about a coming crisis. Can we talk about that a little bit? What is that? What's the coming crisis? So we have a lot of crises right now. We have a lack of institutional trust. We have a lack of democratic energies. We have a crisis of so many different types. The problem is that right now, all of those crises are coming together and they're going to form a much larger one, which is what happens. In all of these apocal moments where things are about to change or there's a possibility of change, there's so many different threads that come together. You take a look at feudalism and the Black Death, which is a pandemic right? You have like climate change and that changes how things work. And you have these different economic and political structures that are in crisis. Eventually they reach a critical point. That's where we're moving right now. The so-called doomsday clock has moved closer to midnight than ever before. 
The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists says climate change and the nuclear risks stemming from the war in Ukraine are putting humanity at even more risk. The clock is a metaphor for how close we are to destroying our planet. It was set for 100 seconds before midnight in 2020, but now it's set for 90 seconds before midnight. And unfortunately, the right-wing authoritarian energies, there's an international movement with people like Vladimir Putin, Viktor Orban, Donald Trump, Jair Bolsonaro. It's all around the world. And it's, by the way, it's growing in the United States of America. It's growing in France. It's growing in Great Britain. It's growing everywhere that it's not supposed to, right? That we've been assured it couldn't possibly grow. These things are coming together because this neoliberal consensus, this globalism that we're talking about, it is reaching a point of crisis where it's not going to work anymore. Donald Trump, of course, ran for president and won the presidency by telling people, hey, you're being screwed. He was telling the truth about that. You're not being represented by these parties. He was right about that. There's a deep state, you know, that you're not electing that takes control. He was right about that. Those things are real. He didn't mean the criticism. He didn't mean to fix it. And as soon as he was elected president, he handed over to the Heritage Foundation to continue this stuff. But eventually, what neoliberalism tends towards is authoritarianism, dictatorship. It's how it was born in Chile with Augusto Pinochet. It relies on dictatorial control and anti-democracy, anti-people agendas. We are reaching a point with everything from the war in Ukraine as part of this. Vladimir Putin and the ideologues behind him saw this entire structure as being flimsy and falling apart, and it was right for a new order. They were right about that. It is right for a new order, and they're pushing against it, and it is starting to crumble. But we're also going to see climate change that's going to wreak even more havoc. Our economics are just absolutely on a razor's edge. You know, even like the world's economic elites admit that this thing is in trouble constantly and falling apart. All of these disparate things are coming together for one of these apocalyptic moments. And I have to tell you, and this is a warning I tell people, and I want to remind everybody, I am optimistic, but you need to understand, look at what we've done to people on our southern border. How awful was that? Taking families, putting them in cages, separating them. We don't talk about the fact that people were forcibly sterilized. What's going to happen when climate change starts shrinking our landmass? What's going to happen when climate change leads to declining resources, economic crises? When all these things happen, if this authoritarianism is allowed to continue to grow, it will take over our government structures. It will use state power the exact same way that we saw that China has used authoritarian energies and surveillance and technology. We're already seeing that in terms of women's reproductive rights, where the state is tracking their biological tendencies, their internet usage, their communications. Those things are coming to a head because the American sort of hegemonic structure that we've all believed, going back to what you said in terms of American exceptionalism, we were led to believe it was permanent. It was never going to go away. It's in decline right now. Globalism is starting to wind back. We're reindustrializing. We're pushing for these new structures that are antithetical to what we used to believe. And as that happens, this crisis is going to grow and we're going to have choices about how we handle it. And we have to recognize that is coming. You have so few people with real power and so many people that use that power for their own whatever purposes. Do we even stand a chance against all of this? 
And I'm thinking about like the takeover of the Supreme Court, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, gerrymandered congressional districts, media consolidations that happen. Do we stand a chance? And what do we need to do? I think that it's very important to take a look at where the progress is happening. I gain so much optimism from watching young people who aren't necessarily educated in terms of labor movements. They are winning incredible battles against the most historically profitable, powerful corporations we've ever known, including Amazon, including Starbucks, including Apple and Google. Like we're seeing people left and right who just by coming together underneath the banner of solidarity and trusting in one another, they're winning. But we don't even have to look at just that. Look at what's happening in China. One of the most historically oppressive regimes with, you know, the most powerful technology that we've ever seen. The people are saying it's enough. They're destabilizing an empire that people never thought could possibly be destabilized. In Iran, women are coming together and saying enough is enough. This is one of the most theocratically oppressive societies we've ever seen. And all it took was these women to come together and say, no, we're done. We're done with this shit. But then you also take a look at what's happening in Russia. Vladimir Putin has almost complete control over that society. People are absolutely terrified to use any quote unquote rights that they supposedly have. Meanwhile, that regime is destabilizing. What we keep seeing is that humanity pushes for freedom. Humanity pushes for things like democracy. Look in the past at something like feudalism. And I want to make this very clear. The feudalist society is one of the most oppressive things that we've ever had. You basically had no literacy whatsoever. People had no information based on what they understood or what was happening in the world. They were basically turned into a toiling peasant class. And what happened? Underneath the most oppression imaginable, you have inquisitions, you have crusades, you have all of these state-powered things. And they put together the information. They start to understand what has been done to them and how things have occurred. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that this fight is going to be easy or simple. I think it needs to be said that we have to get skin in the game. We have to fight for these things. Democracy is more than just showing up at the ballot box every two to four years or watching on television and rooting for a savior to show up on a white horse for James Comey or Robert Mueller or now it's Merrick Garland. These people are going to set things right. They are not. This entire system has been corrupted. It's been turned towards the wealthy and the powerful almost completely. It has to be democratic energies, democratic impulses. I'm seeing signs that's the direction that we're moving in, but we have to take this fight seriously and we have to start making some changes. So if you were to sum up what gives you hope right now, this is usually my last question of the interview. What specifically gives you hope? It's a really complicated question. And I'll be honest with you. This book criticizes bastardized religion and spirituality and how it's been used to control us. The only thing that I can liken it to is a faith. And the faith that I have is in humanity. Man, we are responsible for some of the ugliest things, the ugliest things that have been done in history. But if you actually take a look at it, like it's this belief that we're not actually wretched and awful, that we have something good within us, that we can trust one another, that we can build coalitions that will restore freedoms and faith and even push them forward. And with that, I want to I be honest, it's conversations like this. It's conversations in which we're piecing together these things, where we're having larger ideological conversations. And we're starting to understand that like this meritocracy has never been real, that the wealthy and the powerful are not the most talented, that history isn't like what we thought it was. The pushback against that in the past couple of years, and I don't use this word lightly, it's revolutionary. 
people who are pushing back against gender boundaries, patriarchal constructs, racial constructs, the people who are pushing back against this understand intuitively that these things have been put in our way and in our lives to control us. What I believe is if we disabuse ourselves of these things, which is what always happens with revolutionary movements, whether it's the peasant uprisings or the civil rights movement, it's always about people sitting down and understanding that what they've been told is not real and that it has been done for a reason, that it has been weaponized to protect the wealthy and powerful and increase their power and wealth. I have faith because I have faith in humanity. I think that we are going to make this thing better. I think that we are going to make a better future. Again, it is going to be a fight. But if you look throughout history, you look at these cycles, you look at the things that I found in the Midnight Kingdom, what you find is that humanity has won so many of these battles. Unfortunately, we're going to have to do it again. Jared, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. This meant a lot to me. It was like a really big deal for me. And y'all are wonderful. And the work that you do, I think, is really, really important. So thank you for making time. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. And Mike Pence, I hope you're going to stand up for the good of our Constitution and for the good of our country. And if you're not, I'm going to be very disappointed in you. I will tell you right now. I'm telling you what, I'm hearing the Pence. I'm hearing the Pence just caved. No. Is that true? I didn't I'm, hear, I'm hearing no. reports that Pence caved. No, I'm telling you, if Pence caved, we're going to drag no. through the streets. You politicians are going to get drugged through the streets. Yes. I guess the hope is that there's such a show of force here that Pence will decide to do the right thing according to Trump. When I look at the history of power, I see the construction and expression of the institutional structures so many of us are working to change. Racism, wealth disparity, patriarchy, theocracy. When the American framers wrote that we are all created equal, they rejected these barriers for our country, even if they themselves did not reject them. So many of the crises our nation has faced are because the people defining and clinging to power wielded it selfishly and maliciously. We need a complete upending of power in the United States. We need to return true power, political, economic, social, religious power, to the people. We're supposed to be a nation built from the ground up, but we're being run into the ground from the top. I mean, when January 6th was happening, Hope Hicks was worried about her ability to get another job, for fuck's sake. Not about our nation. Not about the police who are being injured and killed defending our capital. That's what the corrupting influence of power looks like on people who are not fit to wield it. We can do better. We must do better. Or what is the point? of any of it.
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.